Hello and welcome to Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. This is a podcast hosted by Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. My name is Cindy Brzezinski, Director of Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and today we'll be talking about barriers and experiences related to addiction and recovery in African-American communities. And today we'll be hearing from Byron Thompson, Regional Partnerships Manager of the Phoenix, who has been building partnerships in the Midwest since March of 2020. Welcome, Byron. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Cindy. I'm doing well. Good, good. And thank you so much for being willing to share your experiences with our listeners to help raise awareness. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So to start, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, including your professional background and your current role. Well, a little bit about myself. I identify as a person in long-term recovery uh, since September of uh, 2000. And um, prior to 2020, uh, I never worked really in the recovery space. Uh, I I had that pretty much separate from uh, my career. Uh, But in 2020, I had the opportunity to, to do something uh, to get a role with the Phoenix, which is a national nonprofit um, that works in the recovery space. And uh, it really aligned with something that I truly believe in. And so I left the uh, corporate world and, and got into uh, working in uh, this industry with the Phoenix since 2020. Wow, that's great. That's great. So I want to delve a little bit into your personal experience um, with drugs and alcohol. Um, how were you introduced to drugs and alcohol? Well, um, I got started. Um, I'm originally uh, from the south side of Chicago. Um, I you know, certainly have been in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, more than 20 years, so considered this home. But um, in Chicago, uh, growing up, uh, it was the summer Prior to me entering high school, uh, I think it was actually our our eighth grade graduation party. Uh, I ended up having, I had my first beer then. I'll never forget that. And uh, I was introduced to just having a beer, celebrating graduation. And um, I just never forget that, that feeling that I had the first time that I had a beer. And out of all of my friends, I will say, I was the first to say, let's have another one. <laughs> and I, I didn't I didn't realize back then, um, you know, what, what was getting started, but I, I just really had a euphoric feeling uh, from that uh, experience. And I think it was just a culmination of a lot of always being uncomfortable, always putting on a, uh, feeling like I had to put on an act and, you know, some, once I had that, I just became more relaxed and more confident. And uh, so, yeah, uh, and I'll be honest with you, that um, drink led to my first taste of marijuana. All of that stuff happened before my first day of high school. You know, so it was the summer before high school. And that really kind of like screwed up my you know, my high school years, you know, because I was 
just starting the experiment. Before I even touched high school, I was experimenting in that summer. And then I ended up doing a lot uh, throughout high school. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like uh, it really had that that impact right from the beginning there. And what was appealing to you about using drugs and alcohol? Well, you know, as I stated, you know, it was it was a, a an invincible feeling. And I, I feel like, you know, there was something, you know, I think I was lacking um, as far as confidence and, you know, how do I look? Am I too tall? Am I my mom? was a school teacher and being a school teacher, she would take us uh, out of school and um, take us to a school that she would, she was teaching at so that we could be closer to her. And it, you know, just for logistics, she could bring us home. So I started off, you know, my, my first school, um, you know, I, I got to know those kids and then, <clears throat> My mom, you know, about third grade, got a job um, that would be more convenient for us to go to that school. And just as I was, you know, getting comfortable with those kids, I was kind of uprooted and went to that other school. And so those kind of transitions, I had to, you know, change my personality. I had to be accepted by, you know, a different. And so I was always super nervous in my head about meeting new people and especially after I already, you know, established myself with other people. And so moving around like that, I always felt like I had to, you know, put on a show and be super funny. You know, I was a shorter, shorter than some of the students. And so once I touched alcohol, I just, you know, I didn't care as much about what people thought, honestly. And uh, so I think that was kind of the the initial feeling, uh, something that, I discovered that, you know, that was missing. Uh, It was kind of like the piece that was missing, actually. Mm -hmm. The piece that was missing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything, anything else that led you to continue using, or is it really mainly that, like that fitting in that social piece, that missing piece? Yeah, well, I will say that, uh, you know, the availability of, uh, of, of drugs and alcohol in our, in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> I wasn't the only one by far, you know, it was, it yeah. was definitely, um, pervasive in our, in our neighborhood on our particular block, um, where I had no problem, um, you know, being of high school age, going up to the corner liquor store, which there were plenty on every corner, and being able to coax one of the older people into buying us alcohol. And, you know, those were my, you know, influential uh, days that I didn't know that I was very influential or that I had power and, you mm-hmm. know, people like me. And th- so later on in life, I would understand that, you know, those powers and those talents could be used for good. But mm-hmm. back then I used them to persuade people <laughs> uh, to, you know, get underage uh, kids uh, alcohol. And there was always somebody willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And there are also a lot of drugs and marijuana in our neighborhood. And mm-hmm. so everybody's big brother had marijuana. Everybody, you know, we we could, we could had access to it and stuff like that a lot, you know. So, um, yeah, I would say the availability was not an issue at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that was a, also a pretty big influence 
on continuing using? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think that you know some of those movies that they showed us in uh, those scary movies they showed us in school as far as prevention. You know, mm-hmm. saying that uh, it would start. You know, our addiction starts with you know having a drink or having a little marijuana. And then next thing you know, they would be showing people doing heroin and it was just like, oh, good. And they were trying to scare us to death. And we were like, nah, that's not going to happen, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, definitely it progressed because later a lot of cocaine and crack started to um, enter our neighborhood. We don't know where it came from. I just know that. Um, the older people that I looked up to in the neighborhood started to use it. Mm-hmm. And um, it just kind of like exploded in our neighborhood. Whereas, I mean, not just, you know, people who were involved with gangs. I mean, it was just like the valedictorian. I mean, the the, mm-hmm. the, the high school best basketball player. The You know, it was people that I really looked up to. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, just start getting into the the cocaine and and crack, and I don't know where it came from, but you know, I had two older brothers that was involved, um, and I had my best friends across the street, um, and their older brothers were involved. You know, the people that yeah. we look up to were were involved. So we, you know, we did what we did in our community um, based on peer pressure. You know, that's what my peers were doing. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So that environmental piece. How long were you addicted to or using drugs and alcohol before you got into recovery? It's crazy. I was looking at that and um, September 13th, um, I'll have 23 years of sobriety. And I, wow. and I That's tried, awesome. That is, it is amazing. It's even to say that. Um, yeah. But when I did the math about when I <laughs> had my first drink and all that, it turned out to be 22 years. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so I was like, wow. So this year I will have one more year uh, of sobriety than I had of actual um, ingesting alcohol and substances. So wow. I'm, really, I'm looking forward to that. That's really amazing. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about recovery now. So what did you experience that finally led you to recovery? Well, um, <laughs> I had been there before uh, in in my use, but this time I, I had two prior attempts, you know, and it was just two prior attempts at recovery that, you know, did not uh, result in long-term recovery. Um, and, you know, I, I look back and I think there were some were different reasons. Some were, you know, to appease my parents. They, they, they said I could come and stay home if, you know, I would get into recovery and stuff like that. So, um, and that worked for a while, but, you know, it wasn't, I don't think the, the right reasons. Uh, and I think I really needed the desperation of the final situation. Uh, and that was just really like the threat of, really being homeless Mm -hmm. um I had been given an ultimatum and I had really burned a lot of bridges here in uh, Milwaukee and in Chicago and wherever else I was tracking (laughs) Uh, I was really like kind of at my rope and I was like man I, I I'm about to be homeless I'm about to be there and so I opened up my mouth and 
and, and I think I called my brother and, you know, they came down, uh, him and his wife, I'll never forget, came down uh, from Chicago and uh, they kind of like offered me, kind of like dangled a opportunity to stay in my apartment if I would, you know, call a call, call for treatment. Mm. <laughs> and uh, they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, maybe get your rent paid or something. And uh you know, I, I will say there was no sober sober living and all that kind of stuff back. I, those were not alternatives back then. So, mm -hmm. um, so those were uh, so it was really like I don't know where I was going, and um, so yeah, I took that opportunity, and uh, I was super desperate. And I kind of really felt like that was my last shot. Like if I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna be one of those people <laughs> that mm -hmm. I see, you know, and we that we see. And I saw I I saw those people and I just thought that was not gonna be me, but but it had been me. I mean, there were times in Chicago when I was when I wasn't, when I had lost my apartment and stuff like that, where I was riding on the the subway just with nowhere to go, back and forth, sleeping on the subway, um, because I had lost um an apartment in Chicago and I couldn't back go back to my parents. So I had tasted being outside like that before and I didn't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you mentioned about um, your, your experience with, you know, wanting to get into treatment. How were you able to find recovery? Strictly because of two pre previous attempts. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the first attempt that I went to was a place in Chicago. Um, and it was that I had an experience where my mom took me to a big shiny <laughs> treatment center and I know she couldn't afford it, but she was so desperate to try to find something like what's going on with this guy, you know, let's go get him an assessment or whatever. And, uh, and I never forget, you know, it was, it was back before they were saying substance use disorder. I mean, we were just mm -hmm. drug addicts back then. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and it was kind of a cold, uh, experience where you know we went into this big sterile building and and my mom's in the waiting room and they, they take me in the back and the guy comes out and he's like yeah yeah you know he was so flipping about about my you know it just wasn't a very you know caring environment or or any empathetic uh environment which you know I don't know maybe that's what I needed at that time but when I walked out of there, I told my mom, "Come on, we're not, we're not doing nothing. I'm not, I'm not doing nothing in here, you know." Uh, and she was like, "And I, and I know that she agreed partly because, like, she's like, if he don't want to do it, there's no way I can really afford it anyway, you know what I mean?" And um, so she was like, "Okay, you don't want it, then we won't do that." And then I found, uh, you know, that they had like twelve-step meetings and stuff like that where mm -hmm. that didn't cost. And I found, honestly, I found a place in 12 Step um, the first time I ever entered um, a, a 12 Step room. I kind of felt a little bit more comfortable there mm -hmm. and uh, a little more empathetic uh, being around like-minded people. And uh, so to make a long story short, that stuck in the back of my head throughout the mm -hmm. process. Like I knew I belonged you know, something like that, even though I was using, having a taste of 12-step, let me know that that was a place that I probably should be. 
That's great. That's great. So, you know, discovering and coming into the 12 step community and really feeling that connection that there, there's a place for me here. There's, there's like-minded people here and I can connect here. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I had a solid six months, uh, uh, of sobriety after going into 12 step, um, while staying in my parents' house, that was my first attempt. And, um, Oh, no, my second attempt of, of, of sobriety and uh, six months and um, just strictly being ordered to go to 12 step meetings by, because that was like paying my rent at my mom's mm -hmm. house. Like my dad would be like six o'clock, we're rolling around and I would go. And I was like, you know what? But it wasn't even a problem because I enjoyed once I got there and, and I could see the progress. I was starting to, you know feel good and you know I was smiling again and mm -hmm. and uh but I was staying at my parents house and uh so I had a situation where you know I started to you know feel too good about myself I started trying to hang back out with people in the neighborhood and um and try to be a sober person hanging around old friends that are still using okay no I'm just gonna have a coke I can still go to the bar but I can you know I, I just won't have a drink and uh Somebody slipped up and gave me a real drink uh, after six months of sobriety. Totally didn't hear that I asked for a Coke. They gave me a rum and Coke. I enjoyed that rum and Coke. I went out five more years. Of, mm. and, I, and that was what brought me to rock bottom. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's what's something that I'll never forget. The fact that, um, you know, that it cost me another five years. Uh, yeah. And uh, it really scared me to the point where if I use again how long will it take then before i came back you know what i mean or would yeah. i ever be have that opportunity so that's always in the back of my mind even 22 years later like hey if i i'm not the type of person to go out and have a bad night and come right back into recovery the next day i'm the type that may be out five years and go lose every you know so yeah, yeah. that that fear actually is something that you know, I use sometimes to, to get through a bad day. Mm -hmm. Important motivator, that, that fear and remembering. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I share that with others when I'm out telling my story, you know, that everybody doesn't, uh, you know, come right back. Some people I've seen, you know, and, you know, you know they, they, they have a bad night. They went out. I use they. They use, they come back the next week and, you know, we give them a big hug and say, hey, welcome back. Come on. You know, and then some people we don't see, they just gone. You know, we don't know where they are, you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And we we also know that there are um, disparities um, with respect to access to treatment and recovery in different BIPOC communities. Um, what barriers, if any, did you encounter funding recovery in the African-American community? Well, you know, very few, very few beds, very few um, uh, places where you could get inpatient uh, treatment, you know, like I see people uh, receiving now, um, you know, there, you know, when you didn't have insurance or you didn't, you know, um, the places in the neighborhood, they were pretty much filled up, but they could connect you with something uh, maybe outpatient or you'd be on a waiting list. So um, that was something that I definitely experienced. So I never did have really inpatient. Uh, I had to, <laughs> uh, 
I always tell people I had to recover in the same house where I used. Okay? Mm, mm. Um, and I had to go, you know, to my 12 step. And then I was able to go to an outpatient program because there was no inpatient really uh, beds available that I could, you know, afford or anything like that when I, so I was going to my therapy, my, my outpatient, I was going to my meetings and I was coming back to that apartment and trying to just hang in there and uh, not go uh, a block down where my drugs were. <laughs> you know, I tell people yeah. I go out, I go out my door, Cindy, and I would make a right turn. I would never go to the left because to the left, for like for two years, I never made a, a left turn when I went out of the house. I always mm. went to the right because the drugs were to the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tough situation. It sounds like a lack of lack of opportunity for inpatient and in treatment in general, with the exception of outpatient. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I had to, you know. That's something that I definitely, uh, you know, I tell people to this day, you know, that I, I meet a lot of people that are, you know, they're in sober living or they're in, you know, have inpatient and stuff like that. And I just remember my experience being different as far as mm-hmm. those lonely nights coming back home by myself and being in that apartment and, you know, just like, man, just kind of like going meeting to meeting, you know, just mm-hmm. <laughs> going to bed and, and, uh, and uh, going meeting to meeting and, you know, uh, having my book, uh, my, my recovery books and my, you know, my phone numbers and stuff like that were very uh, important, uh, you know, because I didn't have that uh, inpatient uh, experience. Mm-hmm. It sounds like this 12, uh, 12 step community was instrumental in your recovery. You were really plugged in, it sounds like. Yeah, and I will definitely, you know, credit uh, Milwaukee area, you know, mm-hmm. um, recovery as being very uh, and very, very super instrumental uh, in terms of connecting outside of meetings and doing things mm-hmm. uh, socially and physically, um, which is really something that I really gravitated to. Um, uh, we were playing. Uh, you know, there was a sober softball league and uh, things like that that we did in addition to going to the meetings. We would help people move as a group. We would go coffee. So I really learned the power of being connected yeah. um, through sports and through social activities. And that's kind of what my job is now, which mm-hmm. is something that I totally believe in. And, um, the you know, the power of connection is something that uh, helped me make it through. And I think Milwaukee is, you know, a perfect example of that, uh, that opportunity. That's great. That's awesome. And let's, let's talk a little bit about um, stigma. Um, Before you began your recovery journey, what type of stigma did you experience personally and how did it impact you? Um, In terms of, you know, before, before I got into uh, treatment, I, you know, I go back to that sterile building. Uh, mm. uh, the moments that I'll never forget that, you know, the way I was, you know, looked upon mm-hmm. um, and the words that were said to me uh, when I was seeking treatment, um, 
it, it definitely made me never want to go in treatment. You know, yes. <laughs> I mean, it cost me a lot of years, um, you know, being involved in the cocaine and crack uh, era. Um, I think that that era was not looked upon um, as a as a disorder. It was just more of a criminal element and a and a um, just an addict, you know, just being an addict. And and trust me, I mean, we did it to ourselves in our own neighborhoods. So we we would say that about our own relatives, you know what I mean? Um, because that was something that you know. You know, it was something that you just never wanted to be, and you never saw yourself as that. And I, you know, it's just amazing, you know, to me um, that uh, I actually became that person. You know, one of those people, and uh, and uh, so yeah, it was definitely um, you know a stigma attached to you know that whole lifestyle, and um, it was just something that you it was never looked upon as a disorder. It was just like. You know, like, man, it was it was always very negative connotation mm -hmm. um, uh, associated with it. And um, so, yeah, it brings back bad memories. <laughs> yeah, definitely a negative impact, negative, negative. memories. Negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did the stigma associated with substance use disorder deter or prevent you from seeking recovery? If you could expand on that a little. Um. You know, I, I I go back to that experience. You know, I, I um, you know, I you know whatever pride I had left, I didn't want to be talked to, um, or I didn't want to be labeled. I didn't want to have that label. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you know, you know, a crack addict, or I never, man, I would never ever, you know, when I was using ever, you know, it took me a while. Um, you know, when I got in recovery, you know, it's like wow. Um, I had to be really, really desperate uh, before I would admit and say those words, you know. And, uh, you know, I just think, you know, I'm very into the media and into, you know, I always have been. And, uh, you know, just that portrayal through movies, through, um, you know, you know, we, we, you know, you go to a movie and, and the worst person, the most ridiculed person in that whole movie is going to be the crackhead the 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 person you know what i'm saying so so that's the last thing the last thing that you want to be known for in your community um uh, is was was that and uh and you know i came from a community where wow that wasn't you know it was a lot of a lot of them running around a lot you know i mean it was just it was it was insane, you know, the amount of people that you know I associated with that I played ball with, and many have recovered, but many have passed away. You know, many have have not found recovery, and it's just as many who are still, you know, I'm 22 years clean, and I got you know, you know, childhood friends that are still using those 22 years. They're still using it right now. You know, and, um, you know, not doing well or, you know, just, you know, existing out here. And I just couldn't imagine putting that another 22 years of that or going through that, you know, what you have to go through to get it and all that, you know, all the trouble that and the people that you have to associate with. Um, 
in that lifestyle, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's just stick the stigma of, uh, you know, what that comes with, you know, being, with being identified uh, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the media. Um, it, I mean, it's really ingrained everywhere. It's ingrained in our daily life and, and just the, the, the negative impact that has on people and connecting with, with help that's needed. Absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah. And what type of stigma do you experience currently, both personally and professionally, and how does it impact you? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a person of color, you know, I'm in Wisconsin, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm working in this field uh, now. And, uh, but even throughout my recovery, you know, sometimes um, I always felt like, you know, I love to tell my story. I love to help others. You know, I think that's part of something that I learned uh, in 12 step is to give it away. You don't, you know, you, they, they very much encourage you to um, not just, you know, benefit from sobriety, but to give it back, you know? So, yeah. um, so I, I started to, you know, be asked, to tell my story and, and stuff like that. And I thought that was really, you know, uh, you know, unpopular or whatever, or, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I, I just, you know, you would, you would get, oh, they want to hear from me and stuff like that. But, mm -hmm. but then I started to realize sometimes that I'm the black guy that they need on the panel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like, how did you hear about me? Well, they don't even want to hear my story, but they definitely need. I felt like that, you know, mm -hmm. um, so like I would be brought in as that guy, you know. And uh, so um, I think that, you know, I spoke last week in a in a treatment center mm -hmm. and uh, I never forget there was only one black uh, resident in there. And uh, and I was glad that I was there, you know, mm -hmm. to, and then he got to see me and he got to hear my story. Um, but it just still to me shows that the disparity, you know, like it was only one out of all of the all, yeah. all of the residents that were there. And um, so, yeah, I just think that sometimes, you know, I love that uh, when 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 my white when my white friends uh, go and we go to a you know, a black recovery event or, mm -hmm. you know, or, and uh, they're, they're the only one in there. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they, you know, like I said, we had to have fun or whatever. And, and uh, but we, we talk about that, you know, and mm -hmm. I always tell them, and do you know how many times <laughs> as I always say, welcome to my world, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Recovery, like, like there's so many conferences and things that like, like, you know, it's the same, people like the people of color are the same ones. We all know each other. We all, you know, gather in the back and say, hello, what's up? How's it going? You know, and uh, we see each other at each event, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it is, I think, um, you know, in the professional world and, and how it is now that uh, I, I see the same people. I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. One of those people of color that's sober. Mm -hmm. 
you have any thoughts on on how we might reduce those disparities? Well, you know, I think it really, you know, for me, I feel like it starts with me, you know, um, in, in a way that, um, you know, I try to, you know, be a good example and 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 put myself in front of others, you know. Um, but I feel like it's not all. It's when I travel to different other places. It's I feel like sometimes in Wisconsin, um, it's definitely more segregated, um, and that's just our our nature and our um, you know our history here in Wisconsin. And yeah. uh, you know, so it is refreshing to go to you know, even Chicago, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit, it's not as uh, segregated. And uh, so I just think that, you know, I start with myself and trying to uh, make change. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, within the Phoenix and our my current position, um, we have uh, started an employer resource group and, you know, I'm, I'm leading um, the Black Alliance, and you know, we have within our organization. I definitely was one of the, I think, first African American males working <clears throat> within the Phoenix, and now there are more. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I don't always want to be that guy that's leading. You know, um, and I, when I work in Wisconsin, trust me, I'm always one of the people that are you know, leading the charge, you know, and that's, you know, and I said, well, I did that in other positions that I had. I, you know, I had to be the leader of whatever. Um, So I don't always want to be like, that should already be there in place. And, you know, I just joined the group, but, um, but I just think that those kind of things should be available um, within um, our companies. I do, you know, some people don't think that, but I believe that inside the workplace, um, there should be a place where we can meet and be free to uh, talk about our issues and have impact on uh, decision making within our companies. And um, really, sometimes just getting together and and you know being in a Zoom meeting and it's all of us and we're just you know taking a deep breath and just talking about things. Mm-hmm. I found that that has been very helpful and very useful. Um, so, yeah, those are the things that I can do. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, I'm also part of a cohort of people of color um, through um, DHS, Department of Human Services here in Wisconsin. And it's all um, people of color where we're learning about leadership and how to be a leader as a person of color. And so that's another thing that I personally joined or I was accepted into where I'm learning. You know, I'm learning mm-hmm. about not just my culture, but other cultures and people of color and also how to be a leader in that space. We all, man, so many similarities that we all have. And I mm-hmm. think that by us not being, you know, joining groups like that, um, we can share ideas and, and, uh, you know, we can, we can partner and we can network and, and, uh, so it's very, you know, just like recovery, we can do much better when we collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very important. Very, very important. And, and what I'm hearing from you is, you know, connection, collaboration, visibility, um, awareness raising, really engaging. Those are all important things. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not, we're not alone, you know, uh, and, you know, join a group, you know, of your peers. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's more strength, I think, in numbers and, uh, and then being able to take what I'm learning from the cohort, you know, back into my organization and, and enhancing my leadership skills and, you know, and also being able to take you know, what I learned back to management and, you know, maybe we can implement some things in, within our own uh, culture. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. I'd like to circle back uh, a little bit on the community impact um, of, I'll call another drug use. Um, so living in a community or environment uh, where drugs and alcohol were readily available, what was peer pressure like for you to get involved with using drugs? Um, I, you know, they, that's what the cool kids were doing, you know, um, and uh, just, you know, I look back and I was always, oh man, everybody was doing it, but everybody wasn't doing it, but there was a definitely a good group uh, of people. And, and like I said, within my own household, it was, it was, it was going down, you know what I mean? So, um, and in my own family, in my immediate, you know, my uncles and my, my uncles and my cousins and my, it was, everybody was touched by this, okay? Yeah. And and everybody wasn't, uh, everybody didn't turn out to be, you know, in recovery like myself or, but there was actually even a prestige to cocaine, you know what I mean? Like, there was like, you know, the people at the party that are drinking and using it, and then there's that other room you know, where the drugs are, you know, and like, hey, you want to be with the in people in that room, you know, that was yeah. a big part of me. Like, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not just at the party. I'm like, I got to be in with where all the, you know, you know, so that was like, you know, like the room, you know, that you wanted to be in, you know, and, uh, you know, honestly, I think it was very, very uh, glamorized. Uh, like a status uh, thing? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When, I, when I was coming up, and uh, yeah, and then you know, I think when the cocaine, I think got into crack and all that stuff, it got such so much more addictive, and and uh, you know that took people down quite faster uh, than. Uh, so remember, they start having the thing about oh, they can lock certain people up for powder, but they couldn't lock. They 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 would lock. There were disparities and being picked up for crack or as opposed to powder, you know, mm, and yep. stuff like that. So because powder was more prestigious, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So yeah, I was definitely a product of that era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you spoke to this a little bit earlier, um, but I'll, I'll ask it again if there's anything else you'd like to add. Um, but anything on the availability of illicit street drugs and what that looked like in your community? I know you said it was everywhere. People that you looked up to um, were involved. Anything else you'd like to add about the availability of illicit street drugs in your community at that time? Oh, it was just like the store, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the store, like when I was using, you just, it's on the corner, you know what I mean? There's yeah. a liquor store and there's like, 
the people who hang around the liquor store or the gas station or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you know where it is. They know who you are as a repeat customer or whatever. And uh, that's just business. You know what I mean? Those, yeah. You know, those are like <laughs> supporting small business. You know what I mean? That was yeah, just like, yeah. uh, you know, business people um, there, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe not the right uh, kind of business, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there were, you know, you know, I worked, I worked jobs that people with people who work, you know, in banking or whatever, who mm-hmm. were drug dealers, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, they had a job and they sold drugs on the side. I mean, that was just supplemental income and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of almost respected that, you know what I mean? Because people would, you know, um, you know, raising families and doing all that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it was also off of the people in our community, which was like not mm-hmm. good, you know, and, you know, but they were, it was just survival mode to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know drug dealers that were selling drugs to their mom, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, which was, and their aunt and their aunt and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was just, that was just pretty insidious to me, but but it yeah. was just like the survival mode that makes people do something like that. Um, mm-hmm. was, uh, was, in, was just very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And anything else on how that impacted your substance use and or recovery? Well, yeah, it impacted it because like I said, I didn't, have the opportunity to do inpatient. So yeah. I had to be that extra strong mm-hmm. to stay away from that corner or stay yeah. away from that. Because trust me, you know, when they're used to you seeing you and you come in and you're handing them money and then all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that could be an issue, you know? Yeah. So I had to, within my community, dodge those places and, um, you know, not go in that direction. When I tell you that I did not go out my door and go to the left, I mean that. I just did not go that way. (laughs) Um, I did not, you know. um, So, yeah, it was definitely uh, very impactful to uh, keep myself out of that environment until I was stronger, you know what I mean? And I, I think about when I just had 30 days of sobriety or mm-hmm. 10 days or, you know, three days. And I wasn't, you know, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, it's easy for me not to go out that way now. But, yeah. but there were very, very tough times when I thought about it or, you know what yeah. I mean? And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it was very impactful in my sobriety. It's like, you know, where did I get the strength and mm-hmm. all the strength that I had together to not go out that door? Yeah, it sounds really, really difficult, especially in those really early times. Absolutely. Yeah. What an accomplishment to to be where you are today and have gotten through that, taken that right instead of that left and and persisted on and committed to yourself. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing yeah. when, I, when I think about it. And I'm very proud of it, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I, I'd like to ask you a little bit more broad 
strokes here. Um, what do you think perpetuates the cycle of the distribution or sale of illicit drugs in your community? Uh, you know, <laughs> when I think about it, I mean, people get to work from home now. You know, uh, after the pandemic, people, you know, start to be able to work from home. But, you know, um, you know, drug dealers work from home. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, customers and, 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 you know, people coming from the suburbs and stuff like that and the income, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's just economics, you know, mm -hmm. is what perpetuates it. You know, I, yeah. I know that there are some good people that don't want to be selling fentanyl and all that stuff like that, but they do what they do strictly for the commerce and it's just like mm -hmm. money you know um and it's you know as we say in media and everything like that and it's you know it's glorified the what you can do yeah and what you can do and what you can start off doing but you're just trying to get that money to maybe build a business in another maybe even legitimate way but you're just going to do this you know, some people really do have a plan that that mm. they don't want to just do that. They have an ultimate plan that they want to do. And maybe they've seen somebody else who started that way, but they just got that initial money. You know, mm. I think that, hey, you know, we have issues going to get small business loans to start a business. And, mm. you know, that's all systematic and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, so you know, some people are just looking for seed money and they're going to get out and all that stuff. But, you know, by any means necessary, they're trying to get that money. And uh, so I, I see that. That's what I see. Mm -hmm. I see the glorification of um, this can be something that I can do uh, to get what I really want to get started. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think perpetuates the cycle of drug addiction in your community? Um, well, you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to start with marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, I smell marijuana. You know, mm -hmm. I just smell it. I smell it in the cars going by. Yeah. I smell it on, you know, people I, at Walgreens. You know, I mm -hmm. smell it on, you know, and I think it's, you know, that's what got me started. And I, I think mm -hmm. It's starting to be more okay. It's starting to be legalized and all that stuff in different cities. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that young people, I started using marijuana before I was even having sex. And I think my brain and all that stuff wasn't developed enough. And I think these people are starting too young with the availability of marijuana. And I do think mm -hmm. that that starts to you know, and it doesn't affect everybody the same way. That's true. So some people can go ahead about their business and, but it's those individuals that have the, you know, whatever addictive, whatever in their system or their, you know, their, their brain is not developed enough to handle that initial uh taste of marijuana or whatever, and it's going to lead to other things like it did with myself. I think that I started way too uh, young, and I felt like, you know, certainly everybody that I started with did not end up, you know, in recovery like myself. So I do think that 
it does it affects people in different ways but i think the prevalence of it and the um making it uh you know just so everybody's doing it and so accessible is going to be detrimental to some some people are going to take it or leave it but it's going to be detrimental you know uh to some because i'm i'm living proof of that mm-hmm. And why do you think these cycles continue to be an issue in communities of color? Well, I just think that, um, I don't know, I think we're, we're uh, it's in our community, I think, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? like, I don't know how it's in our community, but <laughs> if you want it, you got to come to our community, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, how does that happen? I don't know. I mean, it's a good mm-hmm. question. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how it got back in our community in the 90s, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think that um, until we can uh, get it out of our community and not have it so accessible, um, we're always going to continue to uh, struggle because it's going to be, you know, you're going to do what your uncle was doing. If your uncle was, you know, at the liquor store, and he's, you know, got weed and blah, 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 you know, and that's just best player on the basketball team is smoking weed. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. smoke if the, you know, the guys at the high school who are popular or whatever are doing that. That's that's what you're going to do, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So the, those generational components and role models and people older than you and that that social um, like desirability or status component um, when you're when people are younger. Absolutely, like, I, mean, yeah. I, I really want to create. I want to create the opposite. I want to create the. It's cool to be sober. You yeah. know? I want to create the. You know, my nephew actually is a top basketball player in Illinois, mm-hmm. and he wants to be a spokesman for the Phoenix. He's only like 17 years old and he's one of the top 100 players in Chicago. And Great. so I sent him a, you know, a jersey that's got the Phoenix and like, but the Phoenix is, you know, right now we're, we're we really serve 18 and up, you know, eventually we hope to maybe uh, be accessible for younger, but I think that's something I really want to do because you do what your peers are doing if the the guy that's scoring the most points is being written up in the paper uh for doing great things is talking about sobriety and being sober and not being that one that's smoking that the weed like everybody else whatever that's how we let's glorify that let's let's uplift that yeah yeah at a younger at a younger age, mm-hmm. because by the time you 18, by the time I was 18, uh, getting out of high school, I was pretty much on my way already in the addiction because I started yeah. the year, freshman year, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those are the years where we got to really like um, start to promote sobriety, fun and sobriety, cool mm-hmm. to be sober. Yeah, definitely. It's those younger ages. Yep. I have a few more questions left for you. So circling back to your personal journey in recovery, what have you learned that inspires you to continue maintaining your recovery? 
Well, my belief in people. One thing I learned about myself is that I have talent, you know, and that I'm influential and that people want to be around me and this and that. But some of those same traits that I was using not in for good, I was, you know, using them in a negative way to take advantage of situations uh, to, you know, further my drug use or for further whatever, um, you know, can be used in the right way mm-hmm. to, you know, to, you know, the same qualities that can be used for bad can be used for good. So I really use mm-hmm. that lens when I'm looking at people that are coming into recovery. And when I look at people that are talked about, oh, they're, they're this and they're that, and I meet them and I'm like, wow, this person, I, I mean, this person is talented. This person is um, why everybody wants to be with, you know, this person is a musician. This person is a, you know, um, is more than uh, whatever substance they were using. And so um, those are the kind of things that uh, excite me, uh, seeing people um, being able to, you know, live the way, you know, go back to that love, go back to that real person who you really are without the substances and, and mm-hmm. being able to witness that personally and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, teach them how to, or show them, you know, how to be consistent and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and I owe it to, you know, the people that helped me recover uh, to not forget where I came from uh, from that dark place that I came from. So those are the things that motivate me. Mm-hmm. So really seeing seeing that change in others, um, teaching others, helping others, supporting others, having that that uh, vibe of selflessness that you talked about earlier, kind of giving back. Does that sure. capture it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely uh, giving back what was given to me. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, seeing that, uh, you know, just seeing that light bulb when somebody realizes, whoa, whoa, I forgot, I forgot that, you know, I had this, this talent or I forgot I that I enjoyed singing or I enjoyed playing ball or I enjoyed this, but this other stuff got in the way. And um, yeah, I get to see that in my work every day. That's what uh, very much excites me. Mm-hmm. That's great. So then after finding recovery and reflecting on your previous substance use, um, what else did you learn about yourself? Um, you know, that I had a good upbringing, that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that my parents, a lot of things that, you know, I was resistant to, um, that I'm a lot like them, you know, <laughs> I'm a lot like them, you know, a lot of, a lot of the traits, you know, and that, um, one thing about my dad was he was very consistent, you know, and I find that to be something that I found about myself, you know, mm-hmm. that um, and that that's a very important trait, you know, that yeah. you can be counted on, that you're there every day, mm-hmm. that you, you know, you you do what you do and you repeat and that you don't, you know, just hop around, um, you know, from from position to position, you know, it's just stuff like that. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, being consistent uh, in relationships, in friendships, in um, business uh, is something that I discovered about myself. Um, mm-hmm. 
that uh, it's a useful trait. That's great. And what changes happened in your life after finding recovery? Well, <laughs> what changes? A lot. Everything changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Cindy? What happened? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> What what are my, some of the what I'm are the highlights? I'm sitting in my own house. <laughs> I'm sitting in my own home right now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that own. So nobody has ever uh, taken away a set of keys from me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and said you can't live here anymore since I got sober. <laughs> awesome, uh, awesome. Because I'm an owner now. Okay, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, you know so. Yeah, those are the things that, you know, I, you know, I've taken control of uh, what I can control. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm a a learner. I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, a lifelong learner and I'm a entrepreneur (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have a job and I'm an entrepreneur. And um, so, you know, and I, I love my family. I come from a close-knit family. I'm a very important component of my family. And I'm in on family meetings and we discuss what we're going to do. I'm brought in. I'm not like, I don't have to be found. Uh, where's Byron? You know, I'm consistent um, in my relationships uh, with my friends and family. And I'm counted on to carry my end of whatever needs to be done. You know, um, I'm going to show up and, and do my part. Um, and that's just something, those are the things that I did not know uh, were going to be the benefits of sobriety. Yes, I'm able to have a home and, you know, a car and, and keep my job and all that stuff. But um, showing up and when my dad passed in 2017, uh, he got to see me sober for 17 mm. consecutive years, and I was able to be of assistance when he was sick and mm. show up and do everything that I was asked to do. And those are the things that I did not think were going to be the benefits of sobriety, but those are the things that I think are the most important. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're really grounded. You know, I, I, I get that from you. It sounds like you're really grounded. Yeah, yeah, because I don't forget where I came from, and I still hang around with uh, <laughs> with my friends in 12-step, and, uh, you know, I work with people in recovery, so those are the things that keep me grounded, trust me. Uh, there's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's still a battle going on right now yeah, yeah. out there, so those things like, yeah, that's, it's great that I can tell my story, but there's a lot of there's a lot going on right now that, that keeps me in the fight, you know, keeps me yeah. um, knowing that we got a long way to go. Trust me. Yeah, absolutely. And so what advice would you give a person in the African-American community who is battling addiction? Uh, be desperate. You know, be desperate about your recovery as much as you're desperate about, you know, doing the things that you're doing out there right now, you know, you know, about, you know, obtaining your drug or selling your drug or doing whatever you're doing um, that's got you in the situation that you're in, you know, the same desperation needs to be applied to your recovery. And, um, you know, 
a drug addict, a, a person that's substance, uh, suffering from substance use disorder, um, is unstoppable out there when they're trying to, you know, do what they got to do. And you need to be unstoppable and desperate in your pursuit of recovery. And you have to, by all means necessary, uh, find that place. That's how you, you know, if somebody else, nobody's going to go with you to the, you know, to the to the treatment center or to the recovery place. That's something that you're going to have to do by yourself. You can't be like, hey, let's all go to recovery. That ain't how it works. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in your life that you're probably going to have to do something on your own. Mm-hmm. And, no, you, you know, uh, nobody's going to walk in there with you and um, and keep going back. And so it's really like a growing up. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it takes people. I don't even care if you're 35 or what. Some people grow up at 35 and they mature. And the, the first step in their maturity is going to get recovery mm-hmm. and, and going in that room and dedicating themselves and they they just start growing up at forty five or whatever you whatever year that's their that's their new birth date okay mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah words of wisdom words of wisdom is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't yet discussed <laughs> you know I think we discussed a lot tonight I think you brought a lot sure of did. stuff out of <laughs> a lot of stuff out of me that. Uh, <laughs> That I'm passionate about, you know, but yeah. I think that this is something that uh, that's my whole life, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, recovery is my life. Um, when I get done with this, you know, somebody will probably call me that's in recovery or, you know, I mean, I may have a meeting with some people that, you know, are in a recovery space or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so it's a lifestyle and I'm out there with it. You know, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I may be a part of, of some anonymous programs, but I'm no longer anonymous about my sobriety. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we want to, I know you guys have an event coming up called Soberfest. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about it in case they'd like to come check it out and enjoy this awesome recovery celebration? Absolutely. I thought you would never ask, Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> Soberfest, presented by the Phoenix. And the Phoenix is a sober active community that brings people together all over the nation, but more importantly, right here in uh, Wisconsin. Um, But Soberfest is really just a celebration of sobriety. Uh, It's a music festival, uh, Saturday, August 5th in Pier Marquette Park, which is downtown Milwaukee. I think it's 900 uh, North Plankington. Big, beautiful park. Uh, Probably will be the only festival where there's no alcohol served, uh, no substances, just free food, free live entertainment. We're going to have all of the um, recovery houses and treatment centers and everybody's going to come and table up and we've partnered with all of, uh, of our friends that we that we hang out with in the recovery community. They're all gonna have tables and resources, but it's gonna be food, music, comedy, inspirational speaking from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And um, 
yeah, we if you want to come, just go to the phoenix.org and uh, register for the event uh, on our website there. And uh, that way we'll know you're coming and we'll we'll have a big plate of free food for you. Just sit down and celebrate your recovery. And it's also open to any allies, anybody who supports you in recovery. If you want to bring your your mom or your, your, your cousin, your sponsor, or whoever supports you in your recovery, just bring them down Saturday, August 5th, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Hope to see everybody there in the recovery community and our friends. That is awesome. Very awesome. So again, August 5th, 5 to 9 p.m. Um, you can find out more on thephoenix.org. Very exciting. Um, and I want to thank you again, Byron. It was a pleasure talking with you today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope everyone has a nice day. Thanks for having me. Have a great day.